Well, look, we're going to have to have brains switched on a bit this morning. Uh, We're going to have to think a little bit about 1 and 2 Samuel as we try and put these stories in context, but a little more about the the, the whole train of thought of the Bible, particularly when we come to think about the Ark of the Covenant and its significance. But let's start uh, with with the, the great celebrations with which we, we've, we've come to chapters 5 and 6. I, I, I wonder if you've ever been to a, a surprise birthday party. It's one of those funny things where, arguably, everything you need for a party is there before the, the guest arrives. The, the friends are there, the food is there, the music's there, everyone's having a good time. And yet, technically, you can't say it's a real party yet. Not really. The real party can only start when the birthday boy finally arrives. Well, 2 Samuel chapter 5, our passage last week, uh, David, we we saw this man after God's own heart is appointed by the people to become king of all of Israel at last. He's established his, his capital in Jerusalem where he will reign over the people of Israel, bringing peace and justice We even saw that that he's now defeating God's enemies to bring peace to the region. He defeats the Philistines for the first time in a long time. The the point, I think, of 2 Samuel chapter 5 is that all the ingredients are there. That's almost everything we need for the party to begin. There's just one thing missing. And it's the most important thing of all. It's the guest of the party if I can put it like that. And chapter 6 fixes that problem, because in chapter 6, at last, well, now the party can begin, because God himself arrives. It's not that he hasn't been with David. It's not that David hasn't known him and leaned on him. We've seen that that's been the case all the way along. But, But there's something very significant. His presence is now with his people as the Ark of the Covenant, is brought to Jerusalem. The ark, if you remember, if you know your Bible, is is where the Lord was said to be enthroned between the cherubim. It was a a kind of mobile throne that that moved with the people as they traveled through the wilderness and so on. It, It reflected something of the heaven realities, the throne room of heaven. It's not not hard, is it, to see as we look at chapter six, it's really just two stories. Two stories, both about the the presence of the Lord in the Ark of the Covenant coming to Jerusalem. Both stories teach us something positive about the Lord, our God. But both stories do so by telling us something negative about the sins of God's people. The first story about Uzzah, the second about Michael. I'm going to say Michael just because that's my name. And if I keep trying to say my cow, I'll stumble and it won't work. So Uzzah and Michael. But let's start with the first, shall we? Here we go. Was a fear in the presence of God. So verse 1 of chapter 6, you you noted that, didn't you? 30,000, this is a big group of people gathered together, going to, well, and here's something interesting, verse 2. Where where is it they're going? Bala. Now, we've not had that name before of a city. What on earth's going on there? And well done, NIV. It gives us a little footnote. Do you see at the bottom of your Bible? It is, in fact, uh, originally called Kiriath-Jerim. Now, if we've been remembering the sermons, we'll think, 
Actually, Kiriath-Jerim, that was the last place in the book of 1 Samuel that we, we, we saw the Ark of the Covenant. Uh, if you remember, way back then in the book of 1 Samuel, that the Ark of the Covenant was wheeled out by the Israelites as a kind of lucky rabbit's foot. When, when they were losing in battle against the Philistines in, in 1 Samuel chapter 5, the elders of Israel brought the ark to the front line, presuming it would give them victory. But instead, the Philistines captured the ark. It was such terrible news, do you remember this, that Eli, when he heard, fell off his chair and died. The Philistines put the ark of the Lord in their temple, the temple to their god, Dagon, And each morning they would go to the temple to check. And each morning they found the Ark of the Covenant standing firm. Do you remember this? And the statue of Dagon flat on his face each time. And the Lord, well, his hand was heavy upon the people of Philistine. The Israelites had mistreated the Lord as they mistreated the Ark of the Covenant. But now the Lord was teaching even the Philistines to fear his presence. They became ill with tumors, and so they moved the ark to another city. The same thing happened again in a different Philistine town. The presence of the Lord they were learning was not something to be toyed with, for the Lord came heavily upon them in judgment. And so again, back in the book of 1 Samuel, uh, finally, chapter 6, they let the ark go back to Israel. And the Israelites, of course, rejoice. They receive the ark with sacrifices and singing. And then, and here's the point, the people of Kiriath-Jerim come and take the ark and put it in their city, in their village, in their place. Which brings us back to 2 Samuel chapter 6. Long time has passed, many events But we're still asking the question, as we go back to the ark and its last resting place, as we know, have the Israelites learned their lessons? Will they they honor and respect the presence of the Lord as they ought? Well, at verse 3, they put the ark on a new cart and they sent out to uh, Jerusalem. Great celebrations, verse 5. King David celebrating with all his might, even a small orchestra. Which, as you read it, don't you think, oh, that's, our, that's our nativity service when the kids sing the, the Calypso song. We give them all those kinds of... Anyway, wonderful singing and music as the ark comes. But then, verse 6, and here's the story of Uzzah. The, the oxen pulling the cart stumble on rough ground. There's no mention... By the way, that the ark itself stumbles, but nevertheless, Uzzah reaches out and takes hold of the ark, verse 6. Now look, on first reading, that that seems like a small mistake, doesn't it? A precautionary hand on the ark to make sure it didn't fall off the cart. But but actually, as we we look at the sweep of the Bible, we, we know that that can't be the case. Something more is going on here. Even if you'd never read the book of Exodus and Leviticus and learned about the creation of the Ark of the Covenant and its significance, I think I've got a picture of it. Here we go. Even if we've not learned of its significance by reading other books in the Old Testament, just from this chapter alone, we, we, we must see the seriousness of what's going on. 
it's so wedded to the very presence of God with his people, verse 2, that it's called by the name of the Lord Almighty. Do you see that? And do you remember last week, we, we said the Lord Almighty used to be translated, as a Hebrew word that used to be translated, Lord of hosts, meaning Lord of the hosts of the armies of heaven. It's a, it's a title given to the Lord that speaks of his power. It, it's he who is enthroned between the cherubim on the ark, verse 2. This is God's throne on earth. His presence in his awesome power with his people. And Uzzah was supposed to see just casually as if it was nothing. As if he had every right to simply reached out and held the throne. Touched the Lord's throne, the Ark of the Covenant. Now what sinful man or woman can stand holding on to God in that sense? In all his holiness and power and his might. And the answer of course for sinful men and women is no one. Verse 7, do you see it's described as an irreverent act? And the Lord struck us down on the spot. It's a, it's, a, it's a sad story of Uzzah, but do you see there is a positive lesson about the Lord God there. And what's lovely is that it's King David himself who models learning that lesson. It, it, it's not that he doesn't know God already. Of course, he knows the Lord, his God, well. But there is always more to learn about God's character And this incident helps David along the way, verse 9. David was afraid of the Lord that day and said, How can the ark of the Lord ever come to me? Listen, that's a brilliant question. That's a, a man grasping something of the holiness of God and asking the question which lies at the heart of the Christian gospel, isn't it? How how can someone even like me be right with God? How could God ever accept someone like me into his presence? Those are good questions to ask. When we say that our country is hardened to the gospel, it it means lots of things, but in part what we mean is that, that our friends and family ask the very opposite kinds of questions. Not, how can I stand in the presence of a holy God, but actually the opposite. What can, offer, what can God offer me if I allow him to come to me? Our country has flipped everything on its head. But not for David, not for David that day. He was aware of the purity, the holiness, the power of God. And it causes David to press pause now is not the time to bring the ark all the way to Jerusalem. The, the, the journey, do you see that, is put on hold for three months. Which brings us to the second story, the story of uh, Michael. Joy in the presence of God. Now, I guess the first thing to note is, and um, we'll have to think more about this, is that David's joy in the presence of God hasn't been diminished in this second story. That, that lesson about fearing God, which David took to heart, hasn't at all stopped David from enjoying God. That it's a wonderful thing that we're going to have to think about and, and try and learn from. Fear and joy for David weren't at all incompatible. Quite the opposite. They, they were both necessary and appropriate. Both were a right outworking of a right knowledge of the character of God. 
Uh, he has learned lessons, hasn't he? Verse uh, 13. Uh, this newfound understanding of the power and the purity of God, of his own fallenness. Well, now there are sacrifices. Do you see verse uh, 13? Every six steps, a bull or a calf is sacrificed for sin. Uh, but his, his joy in the Lord is ongoing. He, he sings, he dances. Verse 14, it seems that he heats up so much with exertion that he strips down just to his linen ephod. I said David had learned this, this, this celebration and sacrifice coming together. He had learned this was a right, an appropriate outworking of God's character in his life. But his wife, Michael, was far from convinced this was appropriate. David seemed to understand the real significance of what was happening. Michael, by contrast, seemed to just worry about the TikTok videos being made of her husband, worrying about the the photos the journalists would be snapping of her half-naked husband dancing around. She didn't pause to consider the significance of the ark. She wasn't bowled over in wonder at the presence of God coming to Jerusalem. She didn't think about the character of the Lord God, the one who had made them and saved them. She just worried about the way the world would view her husband. And doesn't this leave you cold, verse 16? And so she despised him in her heart. Well, a strong language. David was busy blessing the people with bread and dates and raisins, verse 19. The Lord is coming, the one who brings life and sustenance and provides for his people, David, showed as he handed out these, these treats, these gifts. But, but Michael could only wallow in her self-righteousness. Criticize verse 20, do you see that word? Her vulgar husband. Well, the Lord took the life of Uzzah because he treated God with disdain, as if reaching out and touching the throne of God was... Nothing of his importance. And now the Lord takes not life itself, but all new life from Michael, as she treats the Lord's presence as less important than, than a public reputation. It's a sorry note to end the chapter, isn't it? Verse 23. And Michael, daughter of Saul, had no children to the day of her death. The sad story of Michael. But again, do you see there's a positive lesson to learn about joy in the presence of of the Lord. It's a lesson modelled again by David. We'll think about David in a sec. Let's let's go back to Uzzah and Michael for a moment though. Do they share anything in common? Is there anything that that holds these two characters together in this chapter? I, I, I think there is. They are both more concerned with the mundane nature of what's going on here. For Uzzah, It's just a box to be transported. For for Michael, this is a a public event useful for brand management. He was concerned that a religious icon not be dropped. She was concerned that David get positive reports in the press. Neither of them saw beyond the practicalities of, of what was happening to the significance of this moment. The party was organized in chapter 5. But now the most important guest himself, the Lord God, was coming in power and splendor, bringing joy and celebration. But both Uzzah and Michael looked on them as if 
They were looking through the eyes of the world, not seeing any of that. Neither saw with spiritual insight the importance of the coming of the Lord God, but David saw. And so David made sacrifices for sin, and David danced and he sang. Well, let's think about us for a moment. I've, I've tried to move at a little bit of pace through the two stories, Uh, Because this is one of those chapters that's spoken of quite frequently when we talk about corporate worship today. And I I think it's worth uh, trying to reflect on a little bit. Two lessons, I think. Uh, The first is that we must hold together the holiness and love of God. We must hold them together. What's helpful and what we need to do as we look at this story and think about church life today is to remember the place in, in salvation history where these things occurred. We don't live in the age of King David uh, and Jesus hasn't come to bring the new heavens and the new earth. We, we live in the church age. And so some things will remain the same from the days of 2 Samuel, but many things will have changed. What, what most importantly stays the same is the character of God, isn't it? Isn't he the same yesterday, today and tomorrow? That the Lord God that we worship is the very same God of, of holiness and life-giving joy that David knew here? Isn't that the, the Lord God that we will, we will be with in the, the life that awaits us beyond death? He's unchanging. And so I guess the first and the most important lesson for us is like David, to to grow in our appreciation and our understanding and our love of the character of the nature of our God. He is both to be feared in his holiness and enjoyed in his goodness and his grace. Both feared and enjoyed. David understood that, and through chapter 6, he's learning more of that. But look, if you know even a little about church history, you know that those two things are really difficult to hold together. Because at times, there have been churches and movements of churches where where approaching God was a, a serious and fearful thing, but where joy seemed entirely absent from the lives of the believers and from their worship together. And at other times in church history, there have been churches and church movements filled with singing and dancing where, well, to use, I don't really like the phrase, but it, I guess it's helpful. God was God Almighty, but not God Almighty, not a God to be feared. That first kind of church seemed to lack a heartfelt appreciation and in enjoyment in divine grace the second seemed to lack an appreciation of the the holiness of god and the horror of human sin do you think we lean one way or another as a church do do we get the balance wrong somewhere do you perhaps by upbringing or by by inclination It, it seems to me that We find the right balance, not only as we come back to passages like this and and look at David holding together a right fear of the Lord and a right joy in the Lord 
not only do we go back to passages like that, but perhaps more importantly, we must keep going back to the cross of Christ because it's there we find the right perspective. It's there the character of our God is worked out in all its fullness. It's at the cross that we learn of the horror of sin and the the seriousness of judgment. It's there we learn a healthy fear of the holiness of God. And it's at the cross of Christ where we learn too about the wonder of God's love and his resolute plan to save us. It's there we learn of the loving sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ and the beauty of redemption and reconciliation. It seems to me it's the, the, the cross of Christ. That's the measure by which we judge our knowledge of God's character and keep things in perspective. When I was a young Christian, I, I, I read uh, J.I. Packer's Knowing God, and uh, he quotes from the book of Romans in, in a way that stuck with me ever since, all these years later. The Apostle Paul in Romans implores believers to consider the sternness and the kindness of God. We must hold on to both of those. We see them both at the cross. And if we can appreciate those, then we will fear and rejoice both and, not either or. Which comes then to the, the second thing, which is expressing fear and joy in the Lord. We need to think too, not just about getting a right understanding of who God is in our hearts and our heads, but how we express those things. And again, salvation history is key. Some things have changed, others remain the same. The character of God remains unchanged through the ages, that's true. But how we respond, well, that does change, depending on where we fall in the, in the timeline of salvation history. I, I had a, a good Christian friend who once invited me to a very um, exuberant, extreme, charismatic church that met in a warehouse in the south of London. The music was... Uh, modern and electric and loud and boy did the people dance I, I was a very young Christian my first experience of such things I just felt awkward and I tried to clap a bit in that terribly middle class white way of doing things and then I just prayed oh Jesus come back today and spare me this embarrassment let this terrible thing end I mention it because I was challenged at the end of that service by some of the folks there who had seen that I was kind of on the edge and not really throwing myself into it. I was challenged by this very chapter, 2 Samuel chapter. Why wasn't I dancing and singing with all my might like David did? Now, I was a young Christian. I really didn't have an answer. I must have mumbled something in response, but thankfully time has meant I've forgotten all of that. I, I know now what I would say. And I would say, well, why aren't you offering sacrifices of bulls every six steps if this chapter was the model for the church today? It, it just isn't, is it? We, we see a lot of dancing in the Old Testament, but it is noticeably, therefore, absent in the worship of the church in the New Testament. Now, I'm not suggesting that dancing is wrong. Uh, if, if you want to dance as we sing, you do it. I won't join you, and you'll be grateful for it, because I have two left feet. I'm not saying dancing is wrong. 
I'm just saying that as worship is modelled in the New Testament, no mention of dancing is made. What we do see instead, what, what is absolutely essential to our worship, the way in which God says we must express our joy at God's love, is singing. Boy, is singing emphasised in the New Testament. Uh, Ephesians 5, we're to sing from our hearts to the Lord when we're together. But also, Ephesians 5, when we come together to worship, we're to sing to one another. That's really important too, to encourage one another. To encourage one another to see God's goodness and to enjoy it. Singing is the key expression, I think, of joy given to corporate worship in the New Testament. Dance if you want to, but sing you must. Sing with your kids as you read Bible studies over breakfast. Sing, sing as you put them to bed, or as you pray with your partner before you go. When you come together on a Sunday, when we come here, come ready to sing. Sing of God's goodness so loudly that if you're sitting on this side of the hall, the people on this side of the hall will be encouraged because you must sing to them as well as you sing to the Lord God. What about the holiness of God and the right fear that that follows? For David, that, that, that godly affection was expressed in sacrifice. What about us? Well, it seems to me a high view of the holiness of God is going to lead us to hate sin, won't it? It did for David. It, it, it will remind us of the seriousness of our rebellion. It will make us hold tightly to the cross of Christ, that final sacrifice that all David's sacrifices could only point towards. The cross is our only hope of salvation. Fearing God in that sense makes me run to the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. I think we can say more than that though. There are God-given outworkings of, of, a, of a, a right appreciation of God's holiness. In James 4, James rebukes the believers he's writing to because of their sin. He calls them, it's his words, James 4 verse 9, to grieve, mourn and wail. I take it those are God-ordained expressions of our heartfelt knowledge of God and of sin. Grieve over sin, run to the cross of Christ, and then sing of his goodness. That's in part how we express our appreciation of God's holiness and his love. So that's uh, 2 Samuel chapters 5 and 6 then. The party is put together, chapter 5. Now the party can start, chapter 6. The Lord is present with his people. God's king is in God's place with God's people living under God's blessing. And finally, as the Ark of the Covenant arrives, God himself is present. I'll tell you now and kind of spoil the story a little bit. This is as good as it gets in the Old Testament. This is the pinnacle. In the next chapters, God will make amazing promises to David that, that we still cherish to this day. And then David's going to see it all unravel because of his foolishness and his sin. But, let's not spoil the story for today. We'll have enough of that later. This is as good as it gets. This is as close as we come to a signpost that, not quite perfectly, but points us to Jesus in a way that makes us want to rejoice. 
And as we see all this then, let us, let us be the ones that grow in the knowledge of God. That we, like Mephibosheth, like David, would fear and enjoy him as we should.